I'm Nick Andrews, and this is Game Theory, our show about strategy, competition, and decision-making, hosted by me and my brother Chris. In episode nine, we look back at how the British cracked Enigma and how they kept it a secret for all those years. In late autumn 1942, in the middle of World War II, a British mathematician arrived in Washington, D.C. to hear about how the Americans were doing in their quest to crack the Nazi code machine known as Enigma. The Americans would tell him they'd resorted to math and computation to crack the machine. They told him all about their complex algorithms and calculations. He admitted to the Americans that they were far ahead of the British. This trip changed the history of humanity, in part because, in passing, the men spoke about computation and machine theory. Those conversations would eventually lead to what we know today as machine learning and artificial intelligence. But the most important thing that happened on the trip was the lie. You see, as it turns out, the entire trip was a sham. The man was Alan Turing. He and his colleagues in England had cracked Enigma more than two years earlier. He was sent to America to throw them off the scent and protect perhaps the biggest secret in World War II history. A secret kept from the Axis, the Allies, and even the majority of his own government. And welcome to episode nine of the Game Theory Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Chris. What's up, everybody? Nick, what do we got? Well, today? so we'll get into that in a second, Chris. First things first is that we've been gone. We haven't done a podcast in about a month now. Um, I relocated. So you can see behind me, if you're on YouTube.com, that I am not where I was. I now live in the state of North Carolina. Uh, my lovely wife got a fellowship here. So we relocated to the western portion of the state of North Carolina. And you were traveling to our homeland of Wyoming. So we just decided to ah, take a break, let the people go. Our uh, 14 listeners will be like, yeah, we'll be back. We promise we'll be back. We're back. Yeah, well, so both of you that have stayed true to this podcast throughout our absence, we're forever grateful for you. Yeah, great vacation. I heard great things about your Relo, especially with timing the moving and all that good stuff. But we're great to be back. I'm glad to be back. Glad to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Back. So, um, yeah, I guess the, the homeland probably treated you well, I suppose. Okay, so first thing I want to look at what's coming into the summer. The NCAA approved a 12-team playoff, and we're going to get into playoffs and and championship systems and find out that that problem has actually been literally the first recording sporting event was as stupid as the BCS and the college football playoff. We will talk about all of that. We've got a bunch of cool episodes coming up this summer, but we're going to celebrate Pride Month, sort of. We're going to commemorate Pride Month. I like doing Pride Month things and, and uh, commemorative month things at the end of the month because there's always like a week where like, it's this month. And like, okay, well, a month is actually like four weeks long. So we are going to do this now. We're going to commemorate Alan Turing and we're going to deep dive into the espionage, the intelligence, the narrative building, and the code cracking that happened in World War II as made famous by the Imitation Game. Now, you as a Marvel fan have seen Doctor Strange 19 times, but you did not watch the Imitation Game, just the links I sent you. I do recall watching the Imitation Game uh, several years ago, but I had forgotten about yeah. it. I genuinely just didn't remember that I had watched that film. Uh, it was really good. You know, that's not to take anything away from sure. the film. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a masterpiece. But yeah, no, it had been uh, it had been a long time, and I did refresh myself on <sighs> on the links you sent, and uh, it, it, it's amazing how well Benedict Cumberbatch can capture Alan yeah. Turing. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, Alan Turing uh, has been dead for a long time 
Uh, but he's a legend in the field of computers, and he he basically started the field, and and his concepts still have enormous influence today. And the way that Benedict Cumberbatch was able to, you know, capture the person as well as the brilliance of the person, pretty spectacular. One hundred percent. So first thing is that you recall watching it as you take a drink of your Saturday afternoon whiskey. I think that we can safely say that you recalled having had watched it, but probably not recalled actually watching the film, which is. Per that, that sounds like a quarantine movie for you. That was, it was on Netflix. You're probably like, yeah, it sounds, this trailer is cool. We'll just stop it right here. I, I, I like to spend my evenings just watching the trailers. But we'll get back to the film. It was ranked like 42% accurate for beautiful.com. The machine was not named after his first love. His first love was named Christopher. Did die at a young age. Things like that. Uh, I do respect that everyone in the film was a real human except for one person, which was the cop at the end. That guy was made up. Everybody else was real. They combined some characters, blah, blah, blah. It was great. Benedict Cumberbatch nominated for an Oscar. And you and I, just before we popped out, we were like, did he win? We thought he won. No, we confused him with that other other British guy, um, Eddie Redmayne, who won for his portrayal of Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Hey, let's do movies about two really famous, smart British dudes. It's two of the smartest British dudes ever. Like, yeah, were they top 15? Sure. That yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty rarefied company. I mean, you consider the litany of... Just enormous, enormous all brains. Right, all right, all right. Let's let's rein it in for our, our no, compadres. I mean, we don't want to give them to as we will get into. They did not exactly respect the old red, white, and blue in this uh, World War II study. So uh, we'll start with uh, the first thing I want to talk about is Alan Turing as a gay man. So in the movie, it's it it makes it seem like he was in the closet. Now he was in the closet, but it wasn't as crazy as it was in the movie. Apparently, this is just from, from uh, our various sources, BBC and Guardian, different articles. But he famously was found guilty of being gay. I forget what they call it, promiscuity or something. And so his options were, first of all, he loses top secret clearance, so he doesn't work for the government ever again. So wait, hold on. Are you saying, so it was it illegal to be gay in Britain at the time? I don't exactly understand. So I looked into that and it was, I believe so. I believe it was, and it was something he was, his, I know that legally his options were jail or essentially gay rehab. Because um, I know a lot of times those laws were based on things like, like corrupting the children. Correct. Like it was some kind of, they, they didn't want to have a, a, a scandal of some kind. Uh, and so that was the justification for right. the law. But I mean, obviously these laws are, they're horrific to think about and, it's pretty shocking when you realize, like, well, okay, it wasn't that long ago that that kind of thing was was criminalized, and it wasn't enough to like not do gay things. It, like the the state of being yep. as a gay person uh, was against the law, and, and that's stunning to think about today. Yeah, and that was like yeah, that, that was, was like, in the fifties that this happened. So regardless of what his options were when he was found guilty or convicted or whatever, he lost top secret clearance top, top secret clearance for the rest of his life because being gay was so taboo. Like you're a threat to the security of the country because you can be blackmailed, which I suppose that is an interesting argument from an intelligence community, but obviously that's also a secondary discriminatory act for against a gay person. He then died from cyanide poisoning. Now, we need to be very clear that for years and years, it was ruled a suicide. There was cyanide found in, in both his bloodstream and in an apple, 
that he that was unfinished next to his bed. And in recent years, it's been concluded that like the investigation was very lazy. He had been on chemical castration for years. So for sure, he died from cyanide poisoning. You can read the articles yourself. They'll be linked in the show notes. There are three theories. A, he was assassinated. B, his mother, I believe, was recently quoted as saying, or like had at the time was saying that recently she had commented that he had been experimenting with different chemicals and just leaving them out and about. He was not a very organized person. And then three, he was infatuated with Snow White and Disney. And, and people believe that if, if Alan Turing was going to commit or complete suicide, as it's properly termed, he would have probably done it this way. Um, I highly doubt we'll ever get a conclusion on any of this, but he, it, it's a probable suicide. Right now, the articles say that it wouldn't be ruled a suicide. It would be ruled inconclusive. So I suppose we'll never know. But either either way, essentially, I learned this from a movie on HBO called The Normal Heart, which is great with Mark Ruffalo. A gay man is essentially responsible for winning World War II or at least putting the Band-Aid on the, the Axis's aggression while America and other people kind of got their crap together financially and uh, logistically to go over there and help. And that's true. That's absolutely true. That's what happened. So this is our celebration and our nod to Pride Month. And like we said, it's all around us. I mean, there's a urban legend that's been debunked many times that the Apple symbol for the company Apple is a shout to Alan Turing, whether or not Steve Jobs has denied that, whether or not I believe his denial, whatever. Either way, that's our shout to Alan Turing. So let's get into the game theory part of this. Yeah. So, Nick, what's the what's the basic overview? I mean, what are we what are we getting at here today? Because obviously there's a lot of strategy and decision making on involved in intelligence operations and collection and analysis and and all that kind of thing. And obviously, you know, one of the biggest assets in war fighting and uh, in international relations at large is intelligence. I mean, a strong intelligence apparatus underlies everything. George Washington said that. Yep. And of course, with the advancement of technology and the the revolution that allowed us to do mechanical computing because of Turing's brilliance, that's changed the game. There have been a number of those kind of watershed moments where the way that intelligence is collected, analyzed, understood, applied, have gone undergone major changes. So what specific example do you have in mind related to what Alan Turing did in the story of the imitation? Yeah, game? so there are a yes, couple things. The first thing is that, well, let's do a little little overview we're going to get to. The first thing is that, like, it was very disruptive to use a computer. The second thing is that, and this is a very poignant moment in the movie because so much of it is about cracking the Enigma code, and this is probably the most important part of this, and, and what I think was more important than cracking the code, which is that the British understood very quickly, and Turing was involved in this, uh, you can't give it away. So we're going to talk about why and how they kept it a secret from themselves and from the Germans that they had cracked this uncrackable machine. So let's start there. The Enigma machine is this typewriter thing that has, I believe it was three times 10 to the 114th power options for what a letter could possibly be, which is more than a Googleplex. Uh, it literally a Google amount of options for what it could be. And then they had different wires that they could cross and switch it up. So they switch it up every day. The machine is like, it's essentially mathematically uncrackable unless you just blindly get lucky at a very much worse odds than even the lottery. So they, they like, whereas it was essentially uncrackable. Turing and the Americans and other people knew that the only way to do this was mathematics. So Turing, contrary to the movie, he was, did not get that much pushback. It was not a very disruptive thing. He said, we need to use mathematics. And they're like, all right, fine, whatever. People that were in the film, including the old guy from Game of Thrones, I forget his name, Chris something. Let's find out his name. You're going to have to be more specific on that. Oh, yeah. The, the uh, uh, Lannister guy. George R. R. Martin? No, George R. <laughs> George R. R. Martin. Yeah, George R. R. Martin cracked Enigma, but he couldn't crack the last book from Game of Thrones. 
man. Yeah. How long has it been? It's not way, way, way too long. So the, he didn't get pushed back from that. They figured out they had to do it mathematically. They end up cracking the code. There goes a fire truck. They end up cracking the code, right? They find out that unless there is a plausible explanation for this, we can't tell people. So what the British did was in- incredibly intense. They essentially sacrificed c- civilians and troops so that they could win the war, which is a conversation uh, we as Americans have had from a very young age as it relates to nuclear warfare on the other theater uh, of the war in Japan. Uh, Chris, so you read books on this, you watch podcasts, like what do you think about the overall strategy of like, we gotta let this civilian boat's gotta go down, these troops, like we can't save them, like otherwise we're gonna tip our hand and we'll talk about why, like what the slow play is in a second, but what do you think about like the ethics of that? Yeah, so the the specific scene in mind is just after they've kind of cracked Enigma and the movie makes it into this dramatic moment. In reality, it probably played out a lot more slowly and over a period of time than than is kind of depicted in the in the dramatic storytelling. And in the scene, once they've cracked Enigma, they start using it to figure out the position of various German assets, specifically the U-boats. The U-boats were an amazing revolution in military technology, and they really gave the Allies some some serious problems. And they had done that for for in years past. But in this scene, the analysts who are working with Turing on identifying the position of the German boats realize that there's a passenger ship with British citizens on it, and it's surrounded by U-boats, and it's about to go down. Based on the positioning of the German ships, they know that they're not gonna let that ship through. And so the analysts jump up and say, well, we gotta notify somebody, you know, call the general, call whomever. We have to let somebody know so that we can save the lives of the people on this ship. And of course, it seems to make sense to do that kind of thing. That's the point of an intelligence apparatus is to be informed about events that can harm you and act in a way that protects you from those events or prevents those events from happening. But in this case, Alan Turing the guy who was the genius behind the entire operation said, no, we actually can't do that. And there's this heated moment where another guy punches him in the face and says, how dare you? And <laughs> Is that your accent? Big wait, deal. wait, one more time. How dare you? <laughs> I'm, I've been trying my best uh, here. Yeah. We had rehearsal. Anyway, Turing is on the ground and he says, if we spill the beans on where these ships are, and if we sound the alarm to protect this passenger vessel, what are the Germans going to think? And so the analysts that are working with him realize, okay, if the Germans know that we acted seemingly on no information at all to just suddenly go out and have a Navy escort for this passenger ship for no real reason, then they're going to realize, all right, they know how to find out what we're doing. Mm -hmm. They've solved Enigma. And so they said in the film, they're going to change up the codes by this afternoon, and they're going to change up the entire working of the Enigma machine by the weekend, and two years of work that they spent trying to develop the technology and the logic behind the machine to figure it out, all going to be a waste. And so these people who know a disaster is going to occur have to keep silent about it and basically cost innocent civilians their lives when they could have done something otherwise. Exactly. So this is exactly, for those of you that play Texas Hold'em, this is called a slow play. And so, Chris, while I have had made great strides at being a chess player per your insistence, mm. I am now ranked in the top 88th percentile of internet nerds 
And I get thousands of views on TikTok for my chess videos. So thousands I would like to point that out to say that you have not learned poker. Because no, when you kick my ass at chess, right. that's annoying. But when I kick your ass at poker, I take your money. So that's the reason I respect it. But if it's just laziness, we really need to have a conversation. Yeah, well, I just, I like money. I like money. And I, like I don't have money. very much of it, so I'm like trying money. to hold on to it. Besides, I know there are a lot of different kinds of poker. Sure. Uh, I'm pretty good at five-card draw. There are two kinds of poker. There's Texas Hold'em and other stuff. Mm. Honestly. Right, Omaha so is one that they slow play. play. Yeah, slow play. Okay, so the slow play, it can happen in other kinds of poker. Not really. In, in five-card draw, it would be more of like a slow bet the scene for Motions 11, that is a slow play where he's like, I don't have anything. Like, yeah, that is all slow. reds. All <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great movie that is. So a slow play is, in, in Texas Hold'em, for those of you who don't know Texas Hold'em, the way it works is each player is dealt two cards. There's a round of betting, and then there are five community cards in the middle. The goal of, the, of each hand, the goal of the game is to win the money. The goal of each hand is to get the best five-card poker hand using the five community cards and your two cards for a five-card hand. So there's seven available cards. Mm, right. You need to replace up one or two of them with your cards to have the best available hand. If the best available hand is the five community cards, the people who have bet that far split the pot. Oh, really? If you have the same community cards, you split the pot. Okay? So the way that the five community cards comes out is as follows. First thing, you get your cards, then there's betting. Second thing, three of the five community cards come out at once. Then the next turn, there's one card, and then the next turn, there's one card. That three-card set is called the flop. When the flop happens, you already have a five-card hand. A slow play is when your first two cards plus the three community cards mathematically not either ensure you guarantee victory or give you incredibly high odds. So if you have right. a royal flush on the flop, you're going to win the hand no matter what. Correct. Correct. So a slow play works out really well when one, one or two or, or more of the opponents that you're playing against also have something. Say in the royal flush metaphor, you have a royal flush with an ace and a king suited. There's a 10 jack queen out there. Somebody has pocket queens. Somebody has pocket jacks. They're like, look at all these hands that I have. And you're like, okay, whatever. You let them bet. You call. You check. You don't do anything aggressive. And you make it look like, or maybe you raise a little just to throw them off the scent. The entire purpose of this is to not make it look like you have the best hand. Now, slow playing appropriately at the highest levels is nearly impossible as it is in warfare. You have to do just enough betting and enough aggression to make them think like, oh, maybe they're bluffing. Or maybe it's one of those game theory things with it's exact same thing as rock, paper, scissors where you're like, wait, who's, who's going rock? What's, what's happening now? And then at the end you say, actually, idiots, I've had the best one the entire time. Thanks for all your money. Thanks for you've been trying to play me. I've made you look like fools, which is exactly what the British did. So what you're saying is the key to winning in this scenario isn't necessarily having the best cards right out of the gate. I mean, that is what allows the slow play to happen. But the more important thing for the player, especially in the context of the larger game, is to not tip off the opponents, like the other people at the table, that they have a right. winning hand. And... To do that, they try to disguise their bets to make it look like any other bet they would have for the average hand right. that they so may Right, so theoretically, if you have this hand and it flops out, you put all your cards, you, you go all in, and everyone's like, either they call because like, there's no way, it's a bluff, or they're like, okay, he obviously has something ridiculous, I'm out of here. Then you would win the small amount that's already been bet. And that is better than nothing, and the goal of having the best cards is to win the most money possible. You should try to win as many hands as you can. But in a circumstance like this where you're being aggressive or you're trying to maximize or when what's at stake is not $90,000, but like the fate of humanity, you need to get the most out of it that you possibly can. And that's when a slow play comes in. It's fine to win the hand, but you want to win the battle. You really want to do damage. 
And that's what the British did here. Now, for a successful slow play, two things have to happen. One, discipline. Two, we'll go with somewhere between idiotic to cocky opponents, which is what happened in World War II. Now, in my opinion, as someone who uses Google and likes to rank things like sports, the Nazi army was probably the greatest army that's ever been assembled for their time in history. That's a bold claim. And you're saying that as a Napoleon guy. Yes, I am. Wow. I honestly think that science, uh, Jewish asylum, and luck are why the Allies won the war. I think there was some big weapon that had something That's to do with that. Goes that goes to Jewish asylum. Hmm. I mean, somebody who helped. I mean, you, you read the book more than I have. But yes, so yeah, the, this, and that's science, right? I mean, the Germans invested in intercontinental ballistic missiles. We invested in nuclear warheads. But if they hadn't invaded Russia or the Soviet Union at the time, may not have even got that far. So, yeah. Uh-huh. So let's talk first about how to slow play. Well, you said like you want to maximize your ability to do this. So how can you be disciplined enough to get the most out of it? The first is you have to develop a strategy. Who is going to get to know? So what the British did was they told, they got buy-in from the top, from MI6 and the, the Royal Air Force uh, Intelligence Service. They got buy-in from the top. Like, this is what we would like to do. And Turing was involved in this, and another very famous person was involved that I'll reveal. We'll bring this all around, right? So they got buy-in from the top, and what they do is they tell everybody, even if we intercept a code from this Enigma machine that the, the Germans have, you are not allowed to act on it unless you can reasonably assign that intelligence to a spy or some other thing. So you can say, well, we just had, we got lucky. We caught another thing. This fictional person, I'm trying to find their name. Uh, his name was Boniface. Boniface? Boniface? I have no idea how the British pronounce their words. Boniface. Know, that, sound, that sounds right. It looks right. Yeah, Boniface. So Boniface was this spy master that was in Germany and in Axis-controlled territories like France and Belgium. He uh, was, I don't know how to say this, uh, bullshit. Did not exist. Not a real guy. Not a real guy. None of his spies were real up. guys. Fake. Just, just made yeah. him up. Amazing. So they're like, Boniface intercepted this thing and we got away with it. The second thing that they did was they shut up in-house. No one knew unless they absolutely needed to. And this was so extreme, they didn't even tell their allies, including the good old United States of America, Chris. Yeah, that's a that's probably a smart move, honestly. Yeah, I think sometimes we get the impression from looking at history that the allies were all united all the time and they were all on the same page. And to a large extent, that's true. But it's still the responsibility of each individual government to look out for its own self-interest. Being part of the alliance is was a critical part of that self-interest for the U.S. and the United Kingdom and the rest of the West uh, in facing off against the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians. Mm-hmm. But part of that self-interest can also mean sometimes not sharing all of your assets right. with your allies. It's prudent. It's critical, in fact, to keep key information to oneself when it comes to matters of really, really grave, like extremely high-level national intelligence right. and, and secrets and things like that. Even if it'll play to your immediate advantage in the short term, that's not the point. The point is to be able to win the war in the long term, pick your battles, and try to identify where you can and can't apply your biggest asset without being caught using it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when we come back, we're going to talk about Alan Turing's trip to the United States in 1942. He cracked Enigma in 1940. He then went to America in 1942 to brief and be a liaison for code cracking in the USA. So we'll talk about that trip. And we were also going to talk about a couple of mistakes that the Nazis made uh, in their counterintelligence and in their belief system that probably could have changed things and, and why it was so important to do this slow play. But Chris, the first thing we need to talk about is a service I used to get married. You were at my wedding. Did you enjoy my wedding? I was at your wedding. You can, if you look really closely, you can see grainy footage of me in the background of a lot of photos. (laughs) Grainy, yes. Well, I mean, that was the appropriate, appropriate ranking for you. My wife and I use a service called Elope Jackson. Now in COVID, things are opening back up. And if you want to get back out there and do your big wedding, that's completely fine. But we use this service called Elope Jackson. Uh, This woman... She, Tiffany, she just did it all for us. She found a B&B for us. She did a very intimate event. She can do events as big as 300. Ours was 14 people. It was incredible. It was a destination wedding. Jackson's got an international airport. We flew in there. She was like, this is the place we're going. It was all done for all of us at the same time. Now, as people from Wyoming, we say like, hey, where should you go if you're going to visit once? Like you just did. Probably the Western side, probably Jackson Hole. So there'll be a link in the description. We did not get paid for this. This is called an, and just a free ad. We are endorsing our, the companies that we actually like Elope Jackson Hall, Chris, if you're getting married anytime soon. TBD. One of anyone out there, if they're getting married anytime soon, Elope Jackson is a good option to consider. Okay, so let's start talking about Alan Turing's trip to the good old U.S. of A. in 1942. This, to me, is just hilarious. Because I, living with a physician who has worked incredibly hard, and knowing you, who has also worked incredibly hard, two yeah. people in my life who have a high level of intelligence and a high level of work ethic, I can't imagine anything harder than going to a trip where you can divulge all of the things that you've worked so hard to know and having not only to shut up about it, but to lie and make it look like the people you're teaching are actually smarter than you. And I can't imagine what it would be like if those people that you were teaching were essentially your innate rivals. Nobody rolls their eyes at each other more than the Brits and the Americans. Nobody. Absolutely nobody. That's true. I I can't imagine why the Brits are rolling their eyes considering that we fought a war so that we wouldn't have to worry about that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, You know, it sucks to suck scoreboard. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, Sorry. I mean, you're welcome for setting the right example, finally. Correct. Yes. Let's let's talk about uh, all of that stuff. So, in November 1942, Alan Turing arrives in New York. So the first thing that I want to talk about is that he hates us. Um, Which, honestly, at the time, is fair. Yeah. I mean, he would be mad, but he didn't hate us. He hated us for those reasons. He hated us because he thought we were mathematical idiots. And three, he hated us because we were annoying. In one of his letters home, this is from uh, a Guardian piece that will be cited in the show notes. He said, quote, this is a secondhand quote from a book. He was complaining about their speech and small talk and the fact that they kept saying, this is a quote, that they kept saying um and er and but and all these little stutters and whatnot. He writes, just say the <laughs> sentence, then stop. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, can you imagine? I, you, I guess you can't imagine. You're hanging out with your buddies mm-hmm. and somebody is tired of small talk and they don't want like any additional sounds other than the words that they want to say. It's like, okay, <laughs> you're here to gather information and convey information mm-hmm. only. That's it. There's no more to the story. 
It is. It is hilarious. So, first of all, a Brit lecturing Americans on decorum is absolutely hysterical to me. Secondly, he's right. Like, you've been a water cooler talk, like hands in your pants, like, oh, well, shucks, well, well, we could, like, circle back, innovation, synergy. Shut up. <laughs> Brief me. That reminds me of like, of, like, what John Adams wrote about Ben Franklin when they were at a convention in Philadelphia and uh, they had to share a room. And it was like this, uh, this stifling, hot day. And so Adams wanted to keep the window shut. And, and so Franklin took that as an opportunity to tell him about like his germ theory. He's like, oh, yes, I believe that illnesses and ailments are caused by bacteria and foul air. And we need to open the sash so that we can aerate the room. And uh, apparently he was just, Adams was really, really annoyed by it. Even though Franklin was a genius, he was right. Obviously. He knew way more than Adams. Adams was just cranky about yep. it. You know, and I, I, and I, I vibe on that every now and then you're like, okay, let's just, I don't care. Like some, and, but sometimes you, you, what's, what hurts more is that you're that person all the time. Like, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. But I, I mean, sometimes you just can't help it. No. Well, okay. But so back to Turing, yeah. why was he going to America? In the so he went over there because we were like, like, America was like, we're not going to war, but we'll sort of help them through Canada or something. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt, obviously in the process of lying to the United States, we're getting things ramped up. There's training, blah, blah, blah. So he's going over there not to help us go to war, but to help us help them with things that we can do without troops, like cracking codes and whatnot. The Americans, mm -hmm. like the Brits, uh, they were completely on the code cracking with the computer thing. They also knew how, like, that's what, uh, that's what, that's the only way that this would work. There have been allegations or, or rumors that there was a, a group of Poles who were like insurgents that kind of figured it out on their own, which is kind of fascinating to me. Oh, Poles like Polish guys. Like Polish people. Yes. Oh. Like some, Pol not, not like, <laughs> not like flag Poles, like actual I Polacks. Do you know Polish is the only word where if you capitalize the first letter, it changes the pronunciation? What? Think about it. Oh. If you capitalize it, it's Polish, but if you don't, it's Polish. Wow, that is some nerdy stuff. You are in the right place for sure. You're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. So he goes over there to discuss because they're like, hey, we've been working on a computer. You guys have been working on a computer. Let's go talk about our computer, right? So then he, because the Americans had been working on it, um, they wanted to make a device so that Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt could talk to each other in a decrypted manner. That was their goal at the beginning. So Turing goes over there and he, his objective is to be wowed and to pretend that the Americans are light years ahead of the British. Can you imagine the difficulty of any Brit to have to go and tell us how much further ahead we are at the thing that they've already beat? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, and to be fair, if the shoe were on the other foot, as it were, I can imagine any American having a very difficult time being humble yeah. and trying to make the Brits think that they're so much better off and so much farther ahead and really setting the tone and all that kind of stuff. I mean, to, to do what Turing had to do in that situation and just lie through his teeth and give the wrong impression to an ally, that requires tremendous humility. It doesn't surprise me that somebody who can pull that off is also somebody who gets irritated at sounds yeah. in small talk yep. and inefficiency of language, like poor economy of words. Right. But still, it requires a lot of humility on his part. And it's frankly a huge achievement that he was able to pull that off yep. and leave the U.S. national security apparatus thinking, okay, we're in a good place, boys. Right. So the, one of the reasons that the decision was made to keep the U.S. out of the loop is, like you said, like, you know, it's just better to keep things in-house. You had mm -hmm. this great accomplishment. We, we don't have troops committed. It's not our people that are being sacrificed in these hard decisions. The other thing is, and you, you and I talked about this before we turned it on today, the U.S. Uh, FDR 
uh, he kind of pitted the army and Navy against each other. And the British knew that. And they were like, we can't trust these people. Like they can't even, they're not on the same page in their own house. Yeah. It was a pretty, a pretty bad system of gathering intelligence in wartime on a basic level. The concept was that the army and Navy intelligence services were in competition with each other. Now keep in mind the CIA didn't come to be until 1947 under the Truman administration. So we had precursors that were similar to that, but military intelligence was leading the way during the war effort. And the basic system was that the president was to receive intelligence reports, like president level, like national level intelligence reports every single day, uh, because that's the best way to keep the most important person, the commander in chief, uh, apprised on developments. But because he had this competition between the Army and the Navy, they had this incredibly stupid system where rather than communicating with one another, having a joint intelligence apparatus and streaming all the information from both services through one conduit, they opted to go on an every other day basis of reporting to the president. So on Monday, the Navy would give their briefing. And on Tuesday, the Army. And in theory, both of the branches of the military should have robust enough intelligence to be able to pretty much tell the president what he needs to know. And at the very least, the folks who were in the room with Roosevelt should have been able to kind of piece things together and develop their own understanding of the picture from the two halves that they were getting every other day. But obviously, that's a lot of work. That's really difficult. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the information they would get from the services was contradictory. And it's difficult to make decisions that way. Uh, And that's actually... Part of the reason that we were caught with our pants down in 1941 with Pearl Harbor. I mean, in theory, the U.S. as a country knew what was going to happen. People had intelligence about the operation to bomb Pearl Harbor. But it was handled in such a clumsy way and it was so poorly communicated that we just were completely caught unawares. And that was one of the greatest national tragedies in the early part of the 20th century for the U.S. Yeah. And really brought us into the war, at at least in the Pacific. Yeah. And that's one of the most debated things is like, you know, what would it have taken if not Mm -hmm. for that? So, I mean, that's a very, we could do a whole, like everything else, plenty of episodes we could do on various aspects of World War II. And I'm sure that we will. will. But Mm -hmm. so we did not have our crap together in any way at all, which is like, hey, they cracked this code. They're about to be invaded in 1940, which we were going to get to in a second. And we literally show up like four years later, years, yeah. mm-hmm. years later. Like we're, we're just what grocery shopping, but in a way, yes, that's, and that's one of the reasons that they couldn't loop us in. And I respect them for that. I don't, I don't know that we would have screwed it up, but it's just better not to risk it when we can't even keep our own house in order. And the second, secondly, America is a much larger country. The idea that we've been compromised in the forties uh, to me could have freaked them out enough not to want to let us in. And then that makes total sense to me for sure. But oh, for sure. I mean, it, it, to me, it's the same reason that you never passed to me when we were on the ice. Correct. Hockey as Correct. Kids. Like yes. when you got a bigger, better looking, faster, more skilled player out there. Correct. Uh, you, Nick, would never want to pass to that player sure. because, you know, sometimes that player would make some mistakes or trip over a blue line or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That, and, we have you that know, video, by the way. on the one hand, it's like, bro, I'm open. But on the <laughs> other hand, you know, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. You got to clean up my mess. That's that's exactly how our hockey careers yeah. went yeah. down for sure. I would hold that much contempt in my heart if I, you know, had to stop me 
Square yeah, is, whatever. Which is you had to whatever. So, okay. So, so the other thing was like, this is the other part of this. This is really interesting. Um, this is hilarious. So one more insult from Alan Turing. Uh, mm-hmm. He was insulted by having, having to pretend to be wowed, uh, but he said the following. <laughs> it, this is a letter he wrote while in America to England, which like the cockiness that we wouldn't like have read that is hilarious. Quote, it astonished me to find that they make these elaborate calculations before they had really grasped the main principles. Unquote. Wow. Yeah. Insulting. But that's like that's like what conspiracy theorists do. Yes. They like get false information. They don't really understand the basics of whatever it is they're investigating. And they just take things and run with them. So, Absolutely. like, you can do all the critical thinking you want, but if the critical thinking you're doing is based on bad information, you're going to arrive at some dumb conclusions. Yes. Yeah, and that's that's really intelligence 101. So, for Alan Turing to insult the U.S. that way, yes. honestly, you have to respect the man for that. Yeah, and I... You just got to give it to him. While the U.S. are back-to-back World War champs, while that is how that went down, I think that in our... And this is just me going on a tangent a little bit. In our education, and our history, we don't give enough credit to A the Soviets for essentially sacrificing their population and really like that Russia invasion thing. More people died in Stalingrad than like most of the American campaign. And number two, that like we were caught with our pants down. And while we did show up at the end and we took care of business, that's true. Like, Hey guys, what you doing? There's a psychopath. It'd be really great if you'd come hang out. And the reason we didn't is because the people were mad. Okay. But I want to talk about just like really quick. Another fun fact about that, that trip is that, uh, he also noted, Alan Turing did while he was in the U.S., that he met a bunch of the people like the British, the Americans put their best people on it. So he met a bunch of people, including Claude Shannon, who is the father of the information theory. He also met a bunch of people who were credited with inventing something called artificial intelligence. He was so instrumental in the artificial intelligence conversations just in the hallway with people, you know, geniuses getting together for like a conference that he went and bought books so he could read on the airplane about machinery and about machine theory and different things that Americans had been working on. So that trip, he just completely lied. It was intelligence. It was espionage. It was warfare. And I think that was a fine decision from MI6 to send him over here to do that. The real thing from that trip that's going to impact humanity, in my opinion, is the AI stuff. It's the computer stuff. And we've seen that many times. When you get these people in a room together and their juices are flowing and the stakes are high, that led to essentially where we are now, like with algorithms and whatnot, and use like the Turing test. It's not something that I knew you had to tell me what that was. Yeah. So the Turing test is a really interesting concept that, that came out of this stuff. And, uh, and actually uh, the Turing test was originally coined. Well, it was originally dubbed by Alan Turing in 1950, uh, the imitation game, mm-hmm. which is where the title of the film comes from, mm-hmm. of course. And the idea is that it's a test of how well a machine can exhibit intelligent behavior uh, or how well a machine can impersonate a human. So Turing suggested that some human evaluator is going to judge conversations just in natural language between a human and a machine. And the point is to generate human-like responses. So like a really good chatbot. Yeah. Uh, and, the, the the evaluator is supposed to like be aware that one of the two people who are participating in this is actually a machine and the people who are participating in it are all going to be separated from one another uh, the conversation has to be it has to be limited to just text so you don't get like the inflections and stuff like that so it's not like a voice thing it's only text uh, and the, if the evaluator 
the human who is supposed to be observing this, not the participants, if the human who is deciding which is a machine, which is a human, if they can't reliably distinguish between the two, which is the machine, which is the human, then the machine has passed the test. Mm. So if the chatbot is convincing enough, it passes the Turing test. Wow. And that's kind of one of the uh, one of the foundational concepts of artificial intelligence. Is I mean, language is is an enormously complicated and really fundamental part of the experience of like being a human person. And so to be able to capture that and distill it in a way that a machine can interpret and apply freely on its own is a pretty spectacular accomplishment. And to date, I don't know, I don't think there are any machines out there that have really passed the Turing test. I mean, I think under scrutiny, they all kind of fall apart. And in, in some cases, they're, they're based on information and inputs that they receive, right? So the point of right. machine learning is to be able to gather information on an active basis and continually apply that information to the processing system so that the outputs can adapt. So the more exposure a machine has to an environment, the more information it has, in theory, the better its outputs are going to be. Uh, I remember a few years ago, Microsoft had this chatbot that went famous or that went internet viral and people were able to interact with it all over the place. And they actually had to end up taking it down because after not very long mm -hmm. on the internet, like a week, yeah, I remember it this. was so flooded with uh... racism, anti-Semitism, vulgar, sexual explicit comments, a lot of like terrible, terrible things yep. that it basically just became a racism propaganda bot. Yeah. And so if you feed it garbage, it's going to output garbage. Yep. And in that way, it's very machine-like. I mean, a lot of people are like that too. And that's how you get like crazy conspiracy theorists and these QAnon dipshits. Right. But <laughs> it's, it's really, really hard to pass sure. the Turing test because language is such a human thing. And it's really hard to just capture that yep. in a machine. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, like, I, I mean, that's that's the Facebook and Twitter algorithm. That's why everybody is in their own silos and, and the Turing test is exactly, it hasn't been solved. And we know like this, the Indian GM, I think Vinesh, I forget his last name. Um, he just destroyed like the super engine, which was incredible to watch. Everybody enjoyed You're talking Anand? Yes, Anand. Oh, yeah, Vishy Anand. So Vishy was uh, the most recent world champion prior to Magnus. Yeah, that's I mean, I just watched the highlights of Magnus beating him because I'm such a Magnus stand. 2021 World Championship coming up. But yeah, he annihilated this thing. Everyone was like, we didn't think that this were possible. Like in theory, a human should not be able to beat these engines. And he just obliterated it because he gave it a bunch of stuff. It didn't have data on it and he knew that it didn't know me. So but now that it has has him, if it inputs that, then we'll see. So um, it's that, like the Sentinels from X-Men. Correct. You know, exactly. For every X-Men they meet, they gain a new power or exactly. whatever. And so exactly. in theory, they can defeat all the X-Men. Right. Pretty cool concept. Uh, machines that we have right now are still really crude about doing that. And you know, a lot of GMs are capable of, of beating computers. Sure. I mean, I think Gary Kasparov, Gary Kasparov was the first player to play a meaningful Deep Blue, right? chess computer, Deep Blue, yeah, in, in the 90s. And uh, he ended up, I think he won one of the matches and then he lost. Yep. And, and it, there was an accusation from his camp that somebody was tampering with the machine because it completely changed its styles in the middle of the match. <laughs> And Kasparov was able to pick that up. I mean, there's only 64 squares on a board. For, yeah, so, like so for somebody to be able to say that at a, the level of advanced chess that they were playing, pretty remarkable. True. But yeah, I mean, most most grandmasters can, you know, they can turn the computer all the way to the hardest setting and they can kind of beat the hell out of it. And that's Strength. because computers play chess differently than humans do. Yep, absolutely. It's also easy to diagnose internet chess cheaters for that same reason. Yep. Uh, because machines play moves that humans would never think to play. They 
do calculations in ways that are that are largely different from human players. And so while a lot of times they identify the correct move, it's a move that somebody sitting at a board wouldn't ever right. even think about. And so someone can say, ah, yes, that looks really weird and a really, really, really good move. And that's exactly mm -hmm. why like, you don't want to give this away because if we, if we, the British, if the British started uh, winning immediately, you'd be like, well, something happened, something changed, mm -hmm. right? If they, if they started right. intercepting all these attacks, you'd be like, well, Enigma was threatened and that's why it was incredibly important. So I have some interesting facts for you about these, these things. So the, we, the last thing we want to talk about is the Germans' mistakes. So the Germans made sure. essentially two or three huge mistakes. Mistake number one can go back to 1940 when it was uh, Schellenberg, who was one of the generals or somebody, I don't really know about the Nazi army, I don't really care, uh, somebody really important, put together a report on how to invade Britain properly, and a lot of it was utilized. However, there was one paragraph that was not utilized at all. Um, so part of this that was a problem is that the Germans were never able to spy on Britain, although the British were very good at making it look like they were spies, like they were scared of spies, in reality, they wanted to concoct a narrative that there were German spies, and if they had cracked Enigma, then the Germans would find out about it. And number two, they were scared of their own people and the Americans and whatnot, which is brilliant. So the Germans were like, if they'd have cracked it, we'd have found out about it. So that was very brilliant. And it was a mistake by the Germans just assuming that there were a bunch of spies in England that they hadn't heard from about this forever. That is just not checking up with your stuff. It's not asking the right questions. Number two was because the British were able to make it look like there was a narrative, this Boniface person, the Germans never thought that Enigma had been cracked because they never they thought that it never could have been cracked. But a part of the problem was that England or the British moved their intelligence service from MI6 to what is Bletchley Park. And that kind of skewed where Germany was sending any spies that it did have or whatever. Um, and you think like, what a brilliant move by the British. Well, that's not true because in the 1940 invasion memorandum or report or book or whatever that the Schellenberg wrote, he noted in 1940 that they had moved from Broadway to Bletchley Park and that they had started using wireless radio communications and computation. So he knew it was written down in the book and nobody like thought that they didn't care. And we see this exact same thing. Like, I don't know which part of history you need to read. You don't go in, in, into the Arctic and Siberia in the winter. I don't care how great your tanks are. Number two, maybe read the book, guys. Like, read the book. It was there. You had the intelligence. Yeah, that is one of the great advantages that Western democracies have in terms of how they use intelligence. I mean, historically, there, there's a great book called The Secret World. I think I mentioned it on the cast before, and it's by a guy named, I'm not kidding, Christopher Andrew. <laughs> so a spectacular you. name. Yeah. Obviously, the guy's got credentials. <laughs> uh, but he's a, he's a British author and student of British intelligence. And one of the things that he said in this book is that authoritarian regimes, like dictatorships, the Marxist, Leninist Russia, the Nazis, I mean, all over the board, authoritarian regimes misuse intelligence because they want it to say certain things. Yep. They draw their conclusions and they demand intelligence that fits the picture afterward. Sure. Some of the things that we're talking about now can be bin into two other categories of kind of doing intelligence well. I mean, it's not enough to just gather information and interpret it. You also have to protect yourself from somebody discovering that you have that information. So do what Turing did. That's called counterintelligence. Yep. Uh, and another way to do that is preventing inadvertent slips. So rather than the intentional moves like, oh, if we save the people on the passenger vessel, then they're going to know. Inadvertent slips can be just somebody talking about their job 
and being followed by a spy or being listened in on or you know, having a, a, an apartment bugged or whatever the case is and somebody is just careless with their words, right. that gives the adversary an advantage and that's called operational security. Yep. So in order to have successful counterintelligence, it's really important to not let the other guys know what you know. Mm-hmm. And it's not just important because the country could lose a major asset. I mean, the British obviously would have lost the advantage that they had in knowing Enigma and the information that the Germans were putting out there. But in a lot of cases, the sources where this information comes from, it's it, it's sensitive and people's lives are at stake. It's like Correct. James Bond. You know, not every agent in the field is able to take down a small country with a bulldozer the way Bond does in half his movies. It's interesting that you say that, Chris, because... One of the greatest sources for how this all went down and like the internal arguing in the 40s and the 50s, we'll get to this in a second. By the way, the Germans didn't find out about this until 72 when the British just published a book, the uh, Royal Air Force Intelligence. They published a book and said, yeah, we cracked Enigma in the 40s. So yeah, they like they didn't find out that's how tight lipped they were. And one of the people that was involved in that, one of the people who was in the room saying this is how we should counterattack, who Alan Turing would say, No, you're dumb, no, you're dumb, no, you're dumb to, is Sir Ian Fleming. Mm. Of the fame James Bond. Of writing JFK's favorite books. James Bond. The yeah. James Bond. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty remarkable how careful you have to be with this kind of thing. Uh, speaking of JFK, actually, mm. uh, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago in the early months of the Trump presidency, there was a lot of advertisement, mostly from the Commander-in-Chief's former social media account. Like, oh, we're going to declassify the JFK papers. Everybody's mm-hmm. going to know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then they just decided, nope, we're not going to do that. Well, that's probably because there's information there that could give somebody an advantage today. We don't know whom, we don't know how much of an advantage, we don't know in what way the advantage might exist, but it's in this country's best interest to just shut up about it. Yep, or or if you've been on Twitter recently, it could be what he knows about aliens, that report is on. I have no idea what you're talking about. That report is on.